God delights in the praises of his people. Yeah. It's just it's an incredible blessing to see people up here using their gifts, gifts that God has given them for his glory. That's just really, really remarkable. And, you know, if you, uh, if you haven't yet found a place to serve here at Vista Grande to use the gifts that God has given you, I encourage you to come and investigate all the opportunities we have for, for you to, to serve here because God has gifted all of you and he wants you to use those gifts and he delights when you use those gifts, especially in, in service to his people. So here we have lots of opportunities. I encourage you to, to investigate those. So the uh, title of the message today is Authority, and uh, the verses we're going to look at, Jesus, Jesus uses these verses to close what we know as, as the Sermon on the Mount, and it is the, the quintessential, it's the pinnacle really, of his teaching. Because in that sermon, essentially, Jesus tells us who we are to be as believers in him, as kingdom dwellers, as citizens of heaven, this is what, what we are to do, how we're to walk. And, and it's a very important teaching for us. And again, we realize what we as, as disciples, as followers of Christ, what we're to, to look like. We read there that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. Those that are merciful those that are peacekeepers, those that are pure in heart are blessed. Maybe surprising to some, we also read that we're blessed if we're poor in spirit, if we're meek, if we're mournful, if we're brokenhearted, and even blessed if we are persecuted. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that we are to be the salt and the light of the earth. We read that when salt loses its saltiness, it's, it's worthless. It's to be cast out. And no one takes a light and hides it under a bowl. They let it shine so that everyone can see its light. We learn to pray. We learn to be charitable. We learn that we're not to worry, to seek first the kingdom. We find the golden rule, do unto others. And we also read that this path that leads to life is a narrow path, and few they are that find it. We read of anger, of lust, the divorce, swearing oaths, retaliation, loving our enemies, each of those delivered with those words, you have heard it said, but I say to you. We read to beware of false prophets, though they may look like us. They may appear to be one of us. They are really sheep and wolves clothing, and we're told that we'll know them by their fruit. And then we read these shocking, shocking words, verses 21 and 23 of Matthew chapter 7, where he says, not everyone who goes about saying, Lord, Lord, not everyone who does miracles, performs miracles, and casts out demons will be included in the kingdom of heaven. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Which then brings us to the passage before us this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. And in these verses, Jesus brings everything that he has just said, everything in the Sermon on the Mount, all of that instruction to its essence. This is the point of that teaching. It's the answer to the question, so what, if you will. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 7, 24 through 29. And if you are able, please stand as I read the very words of God. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your revealed word given to us, Lord. Father, it is truth in its entirety. It is without error. And Father, it is such so that we can build our lives upon it. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would sanctify us with your truth because your word is truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus closes this really hard-hitting message. I mean, there's some tough things in there by saying if you're smart... You'll do what I say. If you build your word, my, your life on my words, not just make my words part of your life, but build your life on my words, make them the foundation of your life, you're like a wise man. And then he says, if you don't make my words the foundation of your life, you're a fool. You're stupid, essentially, is what he says. And then again, in verse 28, we read those words. When Jesus had finished those words, these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Again, there's, there's some difficult words in there, difficult things to understand. Jesus says, do not commit murder. That's the sixth commandment. And then he says, but I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother is already guilty. And then he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. And then he says, but I say to you, anyone who even looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. God said, you shall not murder. Moses wrote it, but I'm telling you, you can understand why they're a little amazed at what he's saying here. Right, the word there is ekplaso, amazed, and, and it's most commonly used to speak of striking out in panic, to, to be shocked or astonished. It means to lash out. Sometimes it's used to drive away with a blow. So this is not a positive response that we're getting here. These people are shocked. They're out of their faculties because of what Jesus has just said. And yes, what he said is difficult. This, this call to a higher standard can be shocking, but they're offended. They're offended. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That's the issue. It's authority. He's teaching them as one having authority. And I need to unpack that a little bit so that you understand why this is so shocking to them. Two types of teachers in Jesus's day, two types of rabbis. You have the scribes, which we just read about here, and, and they're, they're the common. And by common, I don't mean that they're, they're not special, because these are brilliant, brilliant, gifted teachers. But there's a lot of them. And so they're common in the fact that there are many. But again, they're brilliant. They knew the text. 
truly brilliant people. But again, most rabbis, most teachers fit into that category, and they're limited in, in two ways. One, they couldn't take disciples. There are no examples anywhere of these teachers taking disciples and traveling around with their disciples. They haven't distinguished themselves enough for anyone to come to them and say, Rabbi, may I follow you? They, they weren't quite of that level. Second, they could only teach official interpretations of the Torah. They couldn't come up with new ideas or different interpretations. They couldn't say, here's another possible way to look at, at what we've just read. They taught only what was accepted. Their teaching was steeped in the tradition of, of what was already taught. And then the second type of rabbi is that rabbi who was said to have authority, or shmichaz is the Hebrew word. Far less in number, but very, very high in status. So, so how did one become such a rabbi that has authority? It starts with the education system. And that started very early in a, in a Jewish boy's life. Typically, mostly in the region of the Galilee, it was this way, somewhat in Judea, but in Galilee, at about the age of four, you would begin your education. And they would begin with Torah. They would learn the law, right? Be'et Sefer is the name of the school, house of the book. And so at four years old, you would begin learning the first five books of the Bible, the law or Moses. And they would start that four-year-old with the book of Leviticus. That's pretty heavy stuff for a four-year-old to be learning. But that's, that's where they started. And so at the age of four, they would attend Be'et Sefer, and, and they would learn God's Word, and, and the process would continue until about the age of 12. And during this time, they would also be learning a trade. Right? They, they would conduct the family business, whether that was fishing or, or carpentry or stone cutter. Essentially, they would do what they saw their father doing. But by the age of 12, if this young Jewish boy displayed some special discipline, focus, if, if, they, if they had a, a knack for the law, uh, if they had memorized the first five books, of the Bible and could recite it from memory. Remember, that's a 12-year-old, right? 12-year-old people in here. Do you, do you know the scripture? 70-year-old people in here. Can you recite the first five books of the Bible? Right, but, but they showed this particular interest and focus and concentration. They would be invited to continue their education. And the next level was the Beit Talmud, which is a house of instruction or house of learning. Now they would continue their education by looking at the rest of the Bible. They'd begin reading the prophets and the writings, and they would see how the law was interpreted by those prophets, those great teachers. And they would begin to get into some of the interpretation of the law. And that would continue until about the age of 15. And again, same thing. If there was a particular child who showed this discipline and this focus, if they now had the entire Old Testament memorized and could recite it from memory and had a knack for, for the application and explanation, they would then be invited to continue their education at the next level. And that's Beit Midrash, which means house of teaching. Now at this point, they would seek a rabbi whom they could follow. They would be learning from these rabbis. These are the shmicha rabbis. These are the rabbis with authority. 
They would be teaching them, and the students would ask the rabbis questions, and the rabbis would ask the students questions. They'd kind of be testing each other out, and if one of these students gravitated towards a rabbi, they would then approach that rabbi, and they would say, Rabbi, may I follow you? And that rabbi could respond one of two ways. And essentially, what that student was asking that rabbi is, Rabbi, do I have what it takes to be like you? That's the essence of being a disciple, being just like your teacher. And so they would be attracted to a rabbi, to his teaching, his interpretation. They would ask him, do I have what it takes? And that rabbi could say, yes, I believe you do. Come follow me. Or he would say, no, I've, I've watched your walk. I've, I've heard your interpretations, and, and I don't think you have what it takes. Now, that person who's just been rejected can still teach. That's, that's the common rabbi. Right? Those are the scribes, still very brilliant people. They're just not at that next level. And so those rabbis who took disciples, those were the shmicha rabbis. They had, a, they had authority. They'd gone through this process, and then they were commissioned. They were conveyed with this authority, and there was a specific way that that happened. Again, you had to have the entire Old Testament memorized. You could recite it from memory. You also had shown this incredible giftedness and understanding and teaching and interpretation. It was as if God had placed this special call on you and, and that it was clear to everyone that this is what you're to be doing. And that, that, that classical shmicha refers to this, this kind of ordination. Uh, it goes back to when Moses conveyed authority onto those 70 elders. But based on that, the rabbis believe that if you had someone this gifted, we would convey this authority on them. And so three elders would get together and lay their hands and, and convey that authority. Yeah, they, they come together and say, this guy's so gifted, it's so clear that God has anointed him, that, that we want him to take disciples and to go into the world and, and spread the message right? and, and teach these disciples how to live. And so that's how they differed. They could take disciples and they would travel around the world showing their disciples how to live their faith out and also spreading that, that teaching. And they could come up with new interpretations. They could say, you've heard it said, but I say, because they had the authority to do so. And, and that formula is all over the text, the ancient texts. Those common rabbis would say, you heard Rabbi so-and-so say in the name of Rabbi such-and-such that Rabbi what's-it said this. But the smiha rabbis could say, this is what I say. And so how would you get that? How would you get that authority? Well, again, three elders would come together and, and convey that on you. And, and this is the issue with what Jesus has just said. right? This, this authority that he's been giving Right? The people, they're offended by this. And, and they ask that question. And, and it's the first question we're going to deal with. Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is to teach us as one having authority? And we see this all over the text. Jesus is in these, these confrontations and they say, aren't you Joseph's son? Wasn't Joseph just a carpenter? We aren't illegitimate children. And if you don't see the subtlety of that, that statement, they're, they're accusing Jesus of being an illegitimate child. 
And then they outright ask him, Matthew 21, 23, Mark eleven twenty eight, 28, Luke 22. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? Where did you get your smicha? And, and Jesus responds to that question in a pretty typical rabbinic style by then asking them a question. This is what he says, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From what source? From heaven or from men? And they begin talking amongst themselves and they say, well, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? If we say it's from men, the people are going to stone us because they think John's a prophet. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But in essence, he already has. When they ask him, who has given you this authority? And he says, John, essentially he's saying that John was one of those who conveyed this authority on him. And it appears that John was this smicha rabbi. He had disciples. And it appears that he traveled around with those disciples, which is what a smicha rabbi did, exposing your students to the world to show them how to live their faith out and again to share the message. So we think that John was one of those who conveyed this authority. But he's only one of three. There has to be three. So where are the other two? Well, turn with me quickly back to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit is there, and God speaks from the heavens. And I love how Mark says this. Mark chapter 1, verse 10, he says that the heavens were ripped open. God ripped the heavens open. It's like he couldn't wait any longer. And he rips the heaven. And he says, this is my son. And I love him. Listen to what he says. So Jesus receives this authority, this smicha, directly from God himself. And so Jesus' teaching here is one having authority, and the crowds react, who do you think you are teaching us with this authority? Where did you get it? And in response to that question, to prove that he has the authority to say what he's just said, Matthew takes us through in pretty quick succession these ten miracles, ten stories, that again proves Jesus has the authority to teach the way that he just has. He has the authority. They prove he claims to be who he is. And, and they're found in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. We don't have the time to look at all of these in details, but there's some important aspects to each of these that I'll touch on briefly. Again, we're dealing with this question, who does he think he is? And so the first comes immediately after Matthew records that, the, this reaction of the crowd. And I can just imagine the scene here. So look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Now, I don't imagine this to be a very serene scene with these crowds following him. They're offended. They're shocked. They're lashing out in this shock. And so I can imagine them swarming him. Rabbi, explain yourself. Where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are teaching us this way? And then they hear it. Unclean, 
unclean. Look at verse 2. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46 tell us everything we need to know about this man. It says there, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So as Jesus and the crowd are making their way down the mountain and they're pressing in on him, where did you get this authority? Tell me who gave you this authority. They hear unclean, unclean. And then they see him. Torn clothes, head uncovered, face covered from the nose to his chin. And everyone, everyone begins to get out of the way. <laughs> because he's unclean. Now, we can't automatically say that this man has what we know today as Hansen's disease, as leprosy. The word in the Greek that's used for leprosy is, is more describing common skin diseases. There's different words that are used for leprosy. So I don't think this is a contagious issue here that causes these people to get out of his way. You know, whether, whether he's unclean or, 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 or whatever he is, he, he is unclean. That's the issue. Right? They don't want to be unclean. Now, unclean is not a sinful situation. An Israelite would be unclean often. So it's not a sinful situation, but nobody wants to be unclean. So again, I don't think it's, it's a contagious thing. It's the impurity here. And this man is unclean. And as we read in Leviticus 13, he's alone. He's been alone. He's separated. We don't know how long it's been. We really don't know anything about this man. Man had to leave his family, his wife, his children, maybe an ailing father or mother, close friends, any community he has ever known has been removed. And we don't know for how long he's been in that situation. Could have been for years. And we get a sense of the desperation he feels because he's willing to approach Jesus through this large crowd, which is he is not permitted to do in his condition. But he does it anyway. And again, it's not a contagious issue. It's the impurity issue. It's not, I don't want to get leprosy. It's, I don't want to be unclean. And so again, they would have, would have parted like the Red Sea to get out of this guy's way. Everyone moves out of the way except for Jesus. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't ask to be healed. Uh, healing obviously is implied in becoming clean, but he asks to be clean. And, and I think there's just so much deeper here than just the healing. He's been isolated. He's been alone. And again, we have no idea for how long he's been afflicted with whatever disease it is that he has, but it could be for years. The children he left could now be grown men and women with children of their own. But maybe more than this is the fact that he has not experienced human touch in, again, who knows how long. Even if he's been able to see his wife and children, he has not been able to embrace them. He has not had touch in, in who knows how many years. And there's a condition that's known as touch deprivation. If you go too long without physical touch, it affects you physically, psychologically. 
We need touch. And this man has been without touch for who knows how long. You can make me clean. And Jesus could have just spoken a word and made him clean, but he does the unthinkable here. He reaches out his hand and he touches him. Can you imagine what that touch felt like to that man who has been without a caring, compassionate, kind, loving touch for who knows how long? What that would have felt like to him. I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy is cleansed. And again, you can imagine the reaction of the crowd. Did you see what he just did? He touched him. He touched an unclean man. And we can debate whether or not Jesus became unclean here. Again, it's not a sinful situation. But the important thing is that Jesus has healed this man completely. He is completely healed. And nobody has done that. Now, the priests could declare someone to be clean, but they couldn't make them clean. That's authority. Jesus demonstrates that his holiness has authority over those things that make us impure. And he can remove them and make us clean. He has authority. And next we read that Jesus enters Capernaum and he encounters this centurion. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 8. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus tells him that he'll come and he'll heal his servant. But the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. Just say the word and I know that it will be done. And then he goes into this explanation of authority. And, and here's my paraphrase. Jesus, I have been conveyed authority. I've been given authority by the emperor himself. I am the emperor's agent. And so when I tell people to do something, they do it. When I tell them to go here, they go. What I say gets done. And I recognize that you have authority given to you by God himself. And so I know all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at this expression of faith. And then he says in verse 13, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Thy servant be healed. He doesn't pray that the servant be healed. He doesn't go and touch the servant so that her servant can be healed. He just says, And it will be done. And it is. At that very moment, that's authority. Acknowledged by the centurion, you have the authority to do this. Next, Jesus goes into Peter's home and he finds Peter's mother-in-law sick. That's verse 14. Jesus touches her and she's healed. And she gets up and she begins to wait on them. And there's a little more going on here than what we read. In the first century mind, if someone is sick or ailing, there's a spiritual issue behind that. We get a glimpse of that in John chapter 9, verse 2, when Jesus encounters the man born blind. They ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, 
That was the mindset. If you're sick, if there's something wrong with you, then there's a spiritual issue behind that. So when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, not only does the illness leave, but in their minds, whatever spiritual reason for the illness leaves as well. He has authority. He has authority over illness. And in their minds, he has authority over those spiritual forces causing the illness. And he further emphasizes this in the next couple of verses. He heals the demon-possessed, and with a word, he heals all who are ill. He has authority over the spiritual forces and over our illness. That's authority. And then we read in verse 18 that Jesus, again, saw this large crowd following him. And so he gives orders to get into the boat and go to the other side of the sea. And that order in and of itself was absolutely terrifying to them. Because Jesus was asking them to go into Satan's country. This, the land of Israel, this is where God lives. This is where we're protected and provided for. But if we go over there, that's pagan land. That's where Satan lives, and he reigns supreme over there. And then they also had this general fear of water. In the Hebrew mind, water represents chaos. It's a scary place for them. It's the primordial sea where chaos dwelt before God began to speak. And so they have this fear. They believe that if you died on the water, you would wander there forever as a ghost. That's why when they see Jesus walking to them on the water, they're terrified and they say, it's a ghost. That's what they expect there. But this, this fear is, is all of those things combined. Satan's place, the sea, and, and they're terrified. And, and so, <laughs> trip's not starting off too well, and they haven't even gotten in the boat yet. And it only gets worse, right? Look at verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 8. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. They're terrified. We knew this was a bad idea. Well, why? Why would we even think about going into Satan's country? Right? We should have never even started this trip. Right now, obviously, I have no idea if any of that is, is accurate. You know, I can imagine them thinking those things on this trip. And again, we need, we need to remember these were experienced fishermen. Very experienced fishermen. They're used to these intense storms that, that fall on the sea. Most of their fishing, though, is done very close to shore, and, and most of the time it's done at night. Rarely would they venture into deep water. But even so, even as experienced as they are, they are terrified of this storm. They believe they're going to die. And, and there's this idea also that they recognize that these are those spiritual forces coming against them to prevent them from crossing over. And so it just builds their fear. And they come to Jesus and say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. We're going to die. And then Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And it's perfectly still. Look at verse 27. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're amazed. And this time it's wonder. It's a different word. It's marvel. This is not, who does this guy think he is? This is, who is this guy? They are astonished at what they've just seen. That is power. 
That's authority like they've never seen before. Authority over the forces of nature. And then they come to the other side and they're met by Satan's representatives. Right? Look at verse 28. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gerardines, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Suddenly, I think the miracle of the sea is erased. (laughs) I think they've forgotten all about it because they're confronted once again by these forces of evil that are attempting them to keep them out. And these guys appear to be very formidable. I mean, think about the scene here. Apparently, they're really close to a graveyard because we're told these guys are coming out of the tombs and they're extremely violent. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me think zombie apocalypse, right? This is night of the living dead played out in real life in front of my eyes. And I think if they had given the chance, they would have rode back the other way as fast as they possibly could. I mean, these guys are so violent that nobody can get by them. And yet with one word, go, a legion of demons flees. That's authority. And he did it in Satan's country. He didn't even do it in God's land. He did it over here. That's power. That's authority like no one has ever seen before. The next proof is after they get in the boat, they go back across the sea, and once they arrive, we read in Matthew 9, verse 2, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, your son, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And again, they're offended. He's caused great offense once again. This fellow blasphemes. Both Mark and Luke tell us a little bit more about their response. It says they're reasoning within themselves, saying, who can forgive sins but God? And it's really the same response that we started with. Who does he think he is saying he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 4, chapter 9 of Matthew, knowing their thoughts, he said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up, and he went home. Who does this guy think he is telling him his sins are forgiven? Okay, guys, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to tell him to pick up his mat and go home? But so you know that I have this authority, pick up your mat, go home. Picks it up, goes home. (laughs) I love the simplicity of that. I love it. But the demonstration of power and authority, again, it's amazing. It's amazing. Right? Authority. Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. Jesus has the authority over the forces of darkness. He has the authority over the forces of nature. He has the authority over our illnesses and our impurities. And then Matthew gives us two more quick examples that continue to show this authority. Matthew 9.18 begins those, those two. Synagogue official approaches Jesus. Again, in the other Gospels, we're told his name is Jairus. And, and in Matthew, his daughter has already died. And he tells him, my, my daughter has died. Please come, lay your hand on her, because I know that she will live if you do that. 
And so Jesus gets up and begins to follow Jairus home. And along the way, there's a woman who has suffered with bleeding for 12 years. She comes up behind him and she touches the fringe of his cloak. And she says in verse 21 of Matthew 9, for she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Why? Why does she think this? Why does she think this is the solution for her? Listen to Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The word for wing is kanoth. It's, it's the corner. Jewish men were commanded to place tassels on their kanoth, on the corner of their garments. They wore a prayer shawl, and, and on those corners there were what's called zitzit. And so this is what the woman reaches out and touches. She knows Malachi 4.2 says in, his, in its wings there will be healing. This is the Messiah. If I know if I just touch his tassel, that verse is true, I'll be healed. And it happens. She reaches out and she touches. And Jesus feels this power go out of him. And so he turns and he says, your faith has healed you. But we see here that Jesus doesn't even have to say anything. He doesn't have to touch anyone. He doesn't even have to know that he's going to heal somebody. And it happens. She touches him and she's healed. That's authority. That's power. Again, like no one has ever seen before. And then he continues on with Jairus to his home where his daughter is dead. And he goes into the home and he takes her hand and she gets up. Jesus has just brought her back from the dead. Jesus has the authority to bring life to the dead. And then he goes on from there, two blind men following him and crying out, have mercy on us, son of David, proclaiming him once again to be the Messiah. This is the one who will sit on David's throne forever. And Jesus says to him, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes. And he touches their eyes and they can see. Jesus has the authority to give sight to the blind, to bring light into the darkness. And then finally, he goes from there, and this mute, demon-possessed man is brought to him. Verse 32 of Matthew chapter 9. We aren't told how, but the demon is cast out, and the man begins to speak. Jesus, again, has the power over, the, over hell and darkness. He has the power to lose a tongue that has been bound. And so we see this first question repeated often. Who does this guy think he is? And these examples answer who he is. And they also answer our second question, what did he do to prove it? We've just seen how many times over and over again Jesus has shown that he has the authority over the power of death. He has authority over the power of darkness over illness, over impurity, over nature. He has the authority to do what he said he will do, and he proves it time and time again. We have one more question to answer this morning. That question is why? Why? Why should you believe any of this? Why should you believe anything in this ancient book that has been copied over and over and over and over again, and, and for which, by the way, we have absolutely no originals. Why would you believe anything that this 
says. Well, I have an illustration that I think will help you. And, and this is one that I've really struggled with, whether or not I should do this. Um, and I don't do this out of any kind of vanity or pride. Trust me, I do not like drawing attention to myself. But I think the illustration will be helpful. So this, this is the United States Karate Alliance Nationals first place trophy. Uh, I won this in 2004 in New Mexico. And so yes, I am the United States Karate Alliance national champion in sparring. Do you believe me? I mean, look at me. <laughs> Do you believe me? Okay, what if I were to tell you that there were, I know there's at least one person, maybe two, sitting in this room right now that saw me do it? What if I told you that I could put a list together of another 10 to 15 people who were there and could tell you that they saw me win this trophy? Would you believe it then? Yeah, right? Yeah, eyewitnesses, right? Eyewitnesses. Certainly, if there were eyewitnesses that saw me win that trophy, then you would probably, despite your reluctance and your shock, would have to believe me. Right? This has the same verification. This has it. There were people who were there. They saw the miracles and they could tell you about it. And they did. They shared it over and over and over again. Some in those crowds that followed Jesus became followers. And many of those went to their deaths proclaiming the truth of what they saw. Given the option of a horrible death or simply denying the truth, they chose death because they knew they were true and they refused to deny the truth of them. That's why we, re we believe it. We have the eyewitnesses there. They were there. They saw it. They recognized his authority. And the last thing they would do is renounce their king, the one who has authority over death. So maybe you're here today, and maybe you're struggling with that same question. Who is this guy really? Who is he? Can I really trust that he is who he says he is? Can I trust what this says about him? Maybe you see all the trouble and the suffering in the world. Maybe you see all of the issues within the church itself and you struggle. How can it be true? Maybe you think that you're just too unclean for him to reach out and touch you as he did that leper. That he's just not willing to do anything for you. Right? Perhaps, perhaps you do recognize who he is, but you haven't acknowledged his authority in your life. You haven't given him his rightful place as king in your life. And because of that, you're not experiencing the abundant life that he said he came to give and, and that you can experience. And, and you doubt. Can he really do anything about the darkness in my life? He can. He can because he did. And he did it over and over and over again. And they are confirmed by eyewitnesses. They were there and they saw it. And they talked about it. Over 500 witnesses saw the risen Messiah and they went to their death proclaiming the truth that they refused to deny because they knew it was true. 
They were there and they saw it. Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. He has the authority to heal all of our illness and all of our impurity. He has the authority to open blind eyes. He has the authority to grant eternal life. He proved it by what he did. And what he did has been proven by those who saw it. Who does this guy think he is? He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords. He is the beginning, and He is the end. And one day, He is returning. And when He comes, He is bringing His kingdom with Him. And the only ones who are going to be allowed into that kingdom are those who are perfect. Absolutely perfect. Never done anything wrong. As perfect as He is. Pretty sure I don't make the cut. <laughs> and looking at all of you, I'm pretty sure you don't either. <laughs> no offense. None of us do. Scripture's clear. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We miss the mark over and over and over again. And because we miss that mark, the penalty is death. But Jesus came gave his life willingly, willingly laid his life down for you to pay that penalty, to completely cancel it. You owe nothing. It is done. And all you have to do is recognize who he is. Recognize that he has done what he said he would do, that he has forgiven you through his death of the debt that you owe completely. And to place your trust, your faith in that finished work on your behalf and he will then welcome you in to that kingdom, that glorious kingdom where there is no more death, sickness, fear, tears. Trust him today. Recognize him for who he is. Believe the message that has been attested to by eyewitnesses. And trust him today. Let's pray.